Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey you, it's associate producer Nurazri here. We had a blast putting on a live show in Toronto at the Hot Dog Cinema mid-December. And we wanted to share that night with you in case you missed it. If you want to hear a special and hilarious extended cut of the evening, which includes Matea's opening conversation with political consultant Dan Cashgrab, you can become a supporter to get access to the exclusive convo right now. Go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in the show notes. Shout out to all of you who came out to the event. And on that note, let's get into it. I am so excited to be here with everybody for, I think, Candleland's first live event in like three, three and a half years or something like that. <laughs> it's crazy. What happened? Why haven't we had live events for such a long time? I have no idea. Um, 2022 has been uh, a major year for this company. It's been a major year in Canadian politics. Uh, it's been a major year for me. I don't know if you've heard. A lot of stuff has been going on in my life. <laughs> Um, I think if you had asked me at this time last year to predict what my 2022 would be like, I think the only thing that I would have correctly predicted would be Pierre Polyev will probably at some point become conservative leader, and then I will want to flee the country afterwards. Um, and that's exactly what I did, actually. I like left and went to California for two weeks, like basically right after that happened. Everything else has been, generally speaking, a whirlwind of surprises, both good and bad. Um, I'm really, really grateful to have had the opportunity to work on this show. I am so, so excited uh, to invite to the stage three of our wonderful Backbench panelists. They've been a joy to work with this year, and I am very glad to actually get to hang out with them and talk shit in person. Uh, so welcome to the stage. We have Emily Nicola, we have David Mosscrop, and we have Murad Hamadi. Please come join me. So, as we've all been saying, and as you all know, 2022 has been a year for the records. Uh, I feel like we say this literally every year, but every year it is true. Uh, and there really were a lot of important moments in Canadian politics this year, from the Freedom Convoy and uh, how I spent time in the U.S. trying to avoid talking about the Freedom Convoy because I was embarrassed, uh, the impending economic crisis, inflation, the death of the Queen, uh, climate change is still happening. All of these are things that we want to get into. Uh, so there's a lot to digest, and for that reason, we wanted to bring along three of our star panelists to help unpack this year of political chaos. Uh, so I introduced them by name already, but to give a little background for those of you who may not know them, we have uh, right next to me, all the way from Montreal, Emily Nicolas, columnist for Le Devoir and the Montreal Gazette, and of course... Yes. Um, and also host of Candelin's Détour, our French language show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. 
Um, our politics expert and designated shit disturber, David Mosscrop, podcaster, political scientist, columnist, and the author of the 2019 book, Too Dumb for Democracy. Hello. Thank you. Did you say the queen died? I know. It's crazy, right? Oh, my God. That's going to be a week. Yeah. And last but not least, we have, uh, all the way down the end, the guy who actually understands numbers and economics so that I don't have to, uh, Murad Hamadi, reporter from The Logic. Thank you for being here. So it's been just over a year since the last federal election, uh, an election that basically left the political parties all pretty much in the same state that they were in before. To recap, uh, Justin Trudeau is still at the helm, leading the way, and clearly not about to stop anytime soon, even though Tom Mulcair has an op-ed out saying that it's, uh, you know, the Grim Reaper's finally coming for him. It doesn't really seem true. Uh, which brings us to, you know, the kind of confidence and supply agreement, or as some people call it, the woke coalition. Uh, this agreement's supposed to stay in place until 2025, unless the liberals piss the NDP off too much, which they almost did with the dental plan, but the NDP's emails indicate that they don't have any money to really run an election campaign. <laughs> Um, and we also have a new official opposition leader, Pierre Poiliev, and that's what you missed on Glee. So, <laughs> I guess first, first question uh, for Murad, how effectively do you feel like our federal government is cooperating? Like what has been, you know, what's their ability been like to actually pass legislation or, or meet any of the objectives that they set out back in 2021 after the most recent election? no different than the last minority. I mean, you look at the votes in the last minority, the bloc or the NDP basically gave the liberals whatever they thought was particularly important, uh, and then everything else got left by the wayside. And here we are in 2022? Two. 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 And, you know, the, the budget passed, the fall economic statement will probably pass, they might get some of their, uh, like, uh, internet regulation through. Uh, dental care in whatever form they have agreed to it will pass. Uh, the next deadline, I, if I remember correctly, is by the end of next year, progress on pharmacare. Uh, beautifully, the word progress could encompass so many things. You know, it's funny to watch Candace Bergen say, make no mistake, the NDP is in charge. Jagmeet Singh would love to be in charge. The parties did their like closing end of session press conferences, and Jagmeet Singh said something along the lines of, and I'm going to paraphrase, you know, when I'm prime minister, there will be no compromise on X. And I was just thinking, five years ago, I moved to Ottawa, weeks after Jagmeet Singh won the NDP leadership, when he said, here's my path to prime minister, and that included a bunch of writings in the GTA. On Monday night, the NDP won 5% of the vote in Mississauga Lakeshore, halving their vote from the 2021 election. I don't think he's going to be troubling Rideau Cottage anytime soon. All right, so we have a couple highlights there in terms of the fall economic statement. We're maybe going to see uh, some progress on pharmacare in theory, although, as you say, progress could mean literally anything at all. Emily, has there been any notable legislation that's been passed over the past year by our federal government? Like, what has been done successfully? I think Murad, like, spoke a little bit to, to some of it. There's been some of it, but I think all of our minds work in a way where we remember more what didn't go well <laughs> so it's like what the emergency act that part was passed <laughs> yeah they did do that <laughs> you know there's so many other bills that went through and then it was hell in terms of the gun buyback one however i would say that one thing that kind of didn't necessarily create a lot of waves this year was maybe the budget because during the pandemic the budget was a whole thing 
Um, and now I think it's been it's been a little bit more quiet. There's obviously a lot of measures that have been made, but I think a lot of people would have loved a budget that would have been less quiet in terms of like the housing crisis, in terms of a lot of other uh, issues that people are facing. I guess it's easier for things to go well when uh, you don't do things than when you do too much. <laughs> I guess that's the way to put it. Yeah, Dave, you're nodding along. Like, do you have anything kind of to add, or are you basically just mostly in agreement? I agree that <laughs> that that not a lot of stuff got done. Interestingly enough, if you look at the number of bills passed in recent years, it's been consistently going down. The you know Parliament is passing fewer and fewer bills. That's like a thing that's happening. So Pierre Polyev is leader now. It doesn't really look to me like he's going to be leading the party into an election super soon. How effective has he been in Parliament? at, I, I suppose, advancing his party's objectives? Because uh, certainly he's not going to be effective in the sense of like passing legislation because that's not the party's role, but how has he kind of affected the workings of parliament over the past couple months? You do not, under any circumstances, have to give it up for Andrew Scheer. I'm going to very briefly say, you know, in defense of Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole, their electoral performance was actually pretty good. I mean, the, they set the bar pretty high, but they, in both elections, 2019, 2021, they won more votes than the Liberals. And had things gone a little bit different in a few places, they would have formed government. And if you had applied that one-and-done standard to Stephen Harper back in the day, Stephen Harper never would have been prime minister. So, you know, here Polyev is, is maybe facing this one-and-done challenge again. But if they're smart, and I'm not saying they're smart. But if they were. <laughs> uh, they would give the man a chance. He's an utter shit. I mean, I, 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 I did a PhD in political science, but there's no better word to describe Pierre Polyev than an, a little shit. And I, I think that for a lot of Canadians, they see that because his little utter shittedness in a sort of platonic form in which it operates is so crystalline clear, like from the heaven above. But he's had, this is a serious political discussion. But, but he's had an extraordinary capacity to agenda set. He's been very, very good at doing that. So the job of the opposition is to hold the government to account, to act as a government in waiting, and to try to set the agenda on its own terms. And in the sense of government in waiting, not so great. Agenda setting, very good. Holding the government to account, pretty good. People look at the Lakeshore election and say, well, the conservatives didn't win, they've got no shot. I wouldn't sleep on the conservatives. We could find a year from now, two years from now, that things aren't going particularly well, that they're on the ascendancy, and he's got a real shot at winning. Pierre Polyev gives me the energy of like someone who would tell the teacher on you if you like weren't doing work when the teacher was out of the room. Like That's the vibe I get from him. But yeah, I think that's a fair assessment of what the conservatives' role has been lately. You know, we wanted to talk about infrastructure and meaning that in like the broadest sense, not just talking about literal physical infrastructure, roads, bridges, that kind of thing, but healthcare infrastructure, housing infrastructure, the sort of bones of bureaucracy, like the immigration backlog that we're still facing. But to speak about healthcare first, because I think that's a crisis that we've been hearing about a lot in the news, specifically with this wave of like various respiratory viruses that's sending people into the hospital and leaving a lot of hospitals quite understaffed. How would you all evaluate provincial responses to this healthcare crisis? Like, is there anywhere where we seem to be responding to this well, or is it all just sort of bad vibes, bad responses all around? So, Emily Murad, bad vibes from you? Bad vibes. Yeah? Yeah, bad vibes. I mean, we're, we're having like 24-hour waits in emergency rooms in Quebec. I hear there's a Red Cross in some hospitals across Canada. I mean, the level of 
shittiness, let's use that word again, is absolutely nonsensical. Now, that being said, is there more being done? Is there something being done? No, because we're stuck, uh, I guess, in the federalism system, in, in that sense, a bad, the bad sense of the word, in which what we, what's been going on this year is arguing about who should pay the bill. Provinces and the federal government arguing about the healthcare transfer. I feel like that's the only kind of policy we've really been discussing. And obviously, there's a whole conversation about privatization too, but that's been like not even on the radar of the way we've been talking about healthcare in the media because we're all focused on premiers and the feds like arguing and people not getting services. That's what's been going on. Yeah, no, because it feels like basically the provinces are almost refusing to fund services more heavily because they feel like they should get more money transfers from the feds, but then in some cases don't even want to accept the money because it comes with these strings attached that they don't like. Is that a fair read on the situation? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's this long-standing back and forth. The actual mechanics of it, right, like the, the transfers go into general revenue and then the, the provinces set their budgets and health ministers essentially make their pitches for what their slice of the thing. Their slice of the thing, by the way, is like the largest slice by far. Uh, they always get the biggest piece, but uh, how big a piece, how much is there to go around, all of that is a constant fight. I mean, we're still seeing what the mechanics of what the feds are asking for are leaking out in dribs and drabs as it becomes uh, convenient for whichever side. But some of the things they're asking for are things that were seen during the pandemic as, as significant problems, right? Like data, data across healthcare systems. Um, there's been some talk about things like, uh, not from the feds to be whatever the opposite of in their defenses, about workforce strategies so that you don't just have provinces like poaching each other's doctors. Because where else are you going to find people who are qualified to practice medicine in the whole world. Many of those people of whom come to these shores. Yes, you're right. It, it, is a, it is a sort of staring match and we are losing. Is anyone in the audience a parent? Thank you for your service. I, I, I don't know why my hand was up. I'm not. Uh, you know, when my grandma or my, you know, who helped raise me would say like, here's, here's $10, Dave. Go down to the Becker's yeah, I see who's pushing 40. <laughs> uh, here's $10. Go down to the Beckers and get, get me some smokes, which they're going to sell you even though you're six, um, and some milk. And just spend the money on the milk and the cigarettes and nothing else. And because I'm six, I'm like, okay. And then I get a bunch of candy. In, in essence, the federal government gives the provinces money for health care and says, you should spend this on health care. And the province is like, yeah, we're totally going to spend this on health care. Uh, and then spends it on tax cuts for wealthy people. <laughs> and eliminating the sticker fees on cars and other nonsense. And so the federal government says, eh, you know what, fool me once for 40 years. <laughs> and I'm going to start saying, you know what, targets aren't enough. I want to actually see what you're going to do, and then we're going to give you more money. And that's the fundamental nature of this debate now. Uh, we're going to give you more money, but we want to know you're going to spend it in a way that produces effective health care. And the provinces are resisting that because they're petulant and they want the money. And the federal government wants to deliver better. So that, as, as Emily says, that's the fundamental point of contention now. And I don't think it's going to get better anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, it looks pretty It looks pretty bleak. And I think one of the ways that, that this discourse is changing a little bit is it seems like we're hearing a lot more about privatization now than we used to. I think, like, certainly for me, like, growing up, like, one of the things that you learn as, like, a pillar and cornerstone of Canadian identity is the idea of, like, universal health care, whatever. Then you become an adult and realize it costs money to have teeth and eyes. Uh, and a brain. Um, and a brain, yeah. So... 
is this discussion about privatization purely a product of this kind of impasse that we're seeing in terms of who's going to fund healthcare? Like, where is this coming from? And like, how worried should we be about it? Like, what's the way out here? Important to make a distinction here. Very, very few people, unless you are one or two of the more right-leaning think tanks, are actually talking about privatization on the payer side. What we're talking about is privatization on the delivery side. So if in Saskatchewan you need to get a cataract surgery or a knee replacement or hip replacement, stuff that's like the drip coffee of surgery, like the high volume, just pump them out, uh, and then we'll have time to make your macchiatos or whatever the equivalent is later, stents and shit. Um, that stuff still happens in the public system, but they, they push a lot of this, the high volume work through private clinics. Now, that creates a whole other set of host of issues which we don't genuinely have time to get into, but privatization is not a substitute for like, the provinces aren't getting enough money, so you're gonna have to put your hand into your pocket when you go and get a service. Privatization is, should we basically outsource some of this to private clinics who then can hire doctors and nurses, presumably away from the public system, that's a whole other thing. But the- Or is it? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it's important to note that one, we have private delivery of services in this country, and two, like the first politician that gets up and says, I am actually a contender and I'm running on, you will pay more for your healthcare out of pocket, is a brave person. And I don't mean that in a valence way, like I'm not saying that as a positive, that would be a brave move. Like that would be a hell of a thing to get up and Ballsy, say. Ballsy, I feel like is yeah, the word for yeah. that, yeah. <laughs> Because that is an interesting distinction, but to me it just feels as though in the long run, like either quality of service deteriorates or like maybe we have a, a little while of the services privatized before we end up having to reach into our pocket and actually pay for these things. Well, it's been happening, right? It's this loop where you get shitty service in the public system because it's underfunded. It's underfunded, so the nurses and the staff is also getting shitty pay. Therefore, they're going to those agencies or they're going to the private sector who's going to give them better work conditions. And then you have a labor shortage in the public system. And then you get shitty services. And then you get shitty paid for the nurses. So that's the loop we've been going in. And then we're like, the private sector needs to help the public sector that's, that's crumbling. And that's a conversation we're having. And I'm not sure everybody's seeing that cycle in Canadian politics, but I think the people are seeing it more and more. And that's, I guess, where the conversation to me should be heading. For example, Quebec wants to create mini private hospitals. There's a labor shortage. Who is going to work there? If it's not people, you're going to take away from the actual hospitals that are already you know, falling apart. That's the cycle we're trying to break. And I feel like if we're not going to have the conversation on privatization, if we're going to have it in a way that ignores this, this dynamic, then we're not seeing that why? Why is it that the public sector has been failing? Why? It's a textbook. Like There's really people who are like, neoliberalism, how to do it. And that's exactly how. And it's not just about hospital. It's about education system. It's about everything. You just underfund it until people are like, being in the public sector makes me feel like crap. So I'm going to go and pay out of pocket just to get my human dignity back. So that's how you destroy the public system. That's exactly how you do it. So 
that is a very bleak note, but I think a good, a good segue actually to the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which is we've spent so much time talking about this one sort of piece of failing infrastructure. Uh, we need to talk about another one, which is housing. I think what you're talking about in terms of making the public system so shitty and underfunded that it is considered an undignified thing to do to engage with it is exactly like to me when I look at the history of public housing in this country, like that's what I see. New public housing does not get built. The public housing that does exist is like not maintained well. It's just a really shitty situation. So I think our, our general sense is that we have seen very little in the way of effective housing policy lately. Is there anything that we've seen happen on the federal level um, or even like specific policies provincially that are remotely addressing the housing crisis? Well, it, it's not great. <laughs> I don't know if anybody here is a physicist. <laughs> David is just all call-outs all night. Anybody here from Peterborough? <laughs> the housing problem is in many ways fundamentally a physics problem. Um, politicians simultaneously want affordable housing, but they don't want to tank anybody's equity. <laughs> I don't know if anyone here is an economist. But we used to have these things called pensions. <laughs> and they were deferred wages so that you could retire and then not work until you died. You know, everyone's equity and future is bound up in their house. Now, there's a huge financialization of housing in Canada, both at the level of the individual homeowner and at the level, of course, of big financial predators whose job it is to develop housing, sell housing, and to make profit off of housing. Those all, folks all have an interest in high house prices for the most part because their future is banked on that. Everyone who wants in the market has an interest in lower housing prices. Uh, and politicians simultaneously want to hit the brake in the gas and have it both ways, and they can't. And so in the meantime, we have this question, well, we'll just fix it with more supply. And then you've got to deal with federalism and all the challenges of supply, which we're facing. And then you get things like, well, we want you know, more density, and that's good, and then we can have transit, and the Doug Ford's like, I've got an idea, let's build suburbs across the entire province. And then the, one of the core problems is affordable housing. Everyone talks about affordable housing in politics. No one invests enough in it. And even the definition of affordable is not affordable. The definition by the, the CMHC is bullshit. It's not affordable at all, and it keeps creeping up. So you've got these fundamental problems at, at every layer, and we continue to underinvest in affordable housing, non-market housing, because as far as I'm concerned, a fundamental part of housing ought to be the decommodification of something that is so fundamental to human existence that it ought not to be left up to a market that is going to leave people high and dry. And getting that work done, I don't know if anyone here in the audience is a revolutionary. <laughs> getting that work done is going to take a lot of effort. I did wonder how many times tonight we would figure out that the way to fix all these problems is to end capitalism. And I think we just got our first one. Um, I do just want to quickly say, also value neutral on that one. Um, I do just want to say quickly, if you look at Pierre Polyev's housing plan, which is not fleshed out yet, but it is essentially the federal government gives municipalities and provinces money to do things related to housing. You can have that money if you upzone. That is a solution. It is a thing. It is a thing that can be done. It is using the controls of federal money to try and create more housing, regardless of how you feel about him, his party, about the notion of housing policy. That is a concrete thing that someone is proposing in the year 2022 to build more housing and worth sort of highlighting. 
Can I just say, in the UK, you used to call it the House of the Lords, right? And it used to be that you can only vote if you had, like, where you were a landowner, right? And when I look at the House of Commons and a lot of our provincial parliaments, I'm not sure that has changed that much. It's really interesting when you look at the composition of people who are member of parliaments, who are not only obviously homeowners, but also like half tenants, right? And you're like, we put those people in charge of not only making housing affordable for this generation, and we also put them in charge of figuring out renters' right. Like, what a joke. <laughs> We do that, and it's actually, it's really interesting because I do want that conversation to be pushed forward in Canadian public. There's a drastic conflict of interest sitting right in our face when you have the people in all parties, right? More in some parties than other, but in all parties, who are literally having a lot of revenues coming from rents, and they're in charge of protecting your rights as renters. And we say it's privacy, they can do whatever they want with finance, but I disagree. I completely disagree when it comes to housing. That conversation, their people, private finances and people's private property absolutely matters to this conversation. You literally have a class interest in parliament that clashes with the class interests of the vast majority of millennials and Gen Z, and we're just going to pretend it doesn't exist. And personally, I disagree, and I want the revolutionaries in the room to clap. <laughs> When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. All right. So again, so much to say about housing, but there was a third piece of sort of crumbling infrastructure that we had wanted to talk about, which is our immigration system, the backlog that we've seen uh, just with people's applications, whether it's initial visas to enter, PR applications, citizenship, all of that uh, being delayed in many cases for people. So we'll start out with some numbers that the federal government has kind of come up with recently. So Ottawa has revealed a plan to welcome uh, 500,000 immigrants per year by 2025. So really ramping up the amount of immigrants that we're going to see coming into the country. So Murad, what's your initial reaction to that number? Like, how do you see that working in practice, kind of keeping in mind that there's been this significant backlog and issues with actually processing people coming in? So there are effectively multiple immigration systems, right? So there's permanent residence, which is what most people think of when they, what most people mean when they say the word immigrant, which means you're coming into the country and unless you commit a felony, they cannot kick you out as long as you maintain your residency status. Trust me, I check those rules pretty carefully. Um, 
that is the 500,000 number, and it looks like a really ambitious number until you realize that increasingly over the years, and even before the pandemic when it really ramped up, more and more of those people are coming, are already inside the country. So those are people who are here on study permits, uh, post-grad work permits, uh, temporary work permits, who are converting to permanent resident status. Those conversions are relatively easier than the ones of people coming in from abroad. That's not to say that they're happening faster, but that they are easier to process because a lot of the paperwork is already in languages that the government understands or comes from the government itself in some form. So really the mix will determine how well this goes ultimately. Because the processing capacity that they have now, we are getting back to closer to, I think the immigration minister was saying this week, on some of the temporary resident stuff, we are back to pre-pandemic processing times now. Those are not good, let me be clear. <laughs> But like, and, and, and like, this is one of those areas where I, you know, I try to be neutral as much as I can as a journalist, but I have actually been through every single version of this system. And it's, it's hell. It, it honestly is. I think people are focusing on the number because it's a large number and assuming that the, the, the trouble sort of flows from the number. The trouble doesn't flow from the number. The trouble flows from staffing and it, it flows from process. Those things seem to be getting better. And as long as they continue to get better, the ultimate number, 10, 15,000 here or there, doesn't make that much of a difference. All right. And I, I know you recently kind of finished going through the whole process. So congrats, Murad, on becoming a citizen. Now you can even commit felonies. You're good. <laughs> they can't deport me now. I check. Yeah. <laughs> we're stuck with you, and we're very happy. All right. Processing backlogs getting better. That's at least reassuring because I know during the pandemic just to do literally anything involving any kind of government documentation was so backed up. Um, so sh surprise, surprise, immigration's one sort of area where federalism rears its head again with provinces wanting to sort of seize more control over who is you know, immigrating to them, whether it's attracting more immigrants, whether it's wanting to have control over the type of immigrants that they receive. So Ontario, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba have all recently said that they want to choose newcomers that they think will have the greatest chance of success in their provinces. And provinces do also have a constitutional right to request more control, and there's precedent with Quebec having done so. I mean, yeah, I'm wondering, as somebody who lives in Quebec, what is your insight into Quebec's different process? What parts of it maybe work, don't work? Um, and what the implications of that might be, I suppose, for other provinces that are looking to take more control of immigration and, and who's entering their borders? Quebec immigration system is fascinating. There's just the most absurd stuff going on. I mean, some of it works, but some of it is absurd. Basically, you need to have a Quebec selection certificate before you can apply, and that allows you to apply for permanent residency with the federal government. And now they're looking at changing the criteria of how to get that, uh, prioritizing, for example, people who already speak French when they're trying to become economic immigrants with applying with, through the, the Quebec province. But some of it is just absurd. I mean, if you're French, literally French, you still need to pay hundreds of dollars to pass a French test. And then that test is not even done in Quebec. So you have people living in Quebec their entire lives and they're trying to do a French test done in France by consultants about French general culture. <laughs> and that's like, there's a lot of absurdities. However, I will say that François Legault was asking for more powers in immigration because essentially the province only controlled economic immigrants and then family reunification and refugees is still, is still federal. 
now they're kind of like, they've backed down. They, they kind of spoke at the last Francophonie Summit in, in Tunisia a couple of weeks ago, and now they, they seem to be more chill. Uh, and essentially, Quebec has said, is the, the government is, is saying, we're, because they're afraid that French is dying and that immigrants is causing that, essentially. The ideology that, of François Legault, so essentially what they're saying is that we're going to bring in more people that speak French from the get-go, which I think is interesting because the vast majority of French-speaking people in the world live in Africa. Um, they're black, blackity black, black, black. <laughs> and a lot of them are Muslims too from North Africa. And so it's going to make the debates about Bill 21 and like systemic racism really interesting in a couple years. I'm saying bringing the reinforcements. I'm ready. We're all ready. All right. We could talk all night, truly, about just different aspects of federal government infrastructure that are falling apart before our eyes or being held together with duct tape. But uh, crazy things happened this year outside of that. There's a war that's happening. The war in Ukraine broke out in February. It feels kind of hard to believe that that was also this year. And I think we all reacted with sort of shock and horror that this was actually going on. Uh, the war is still going on. I think it's fallen a little bit out of news coverage just because this sort of first sense of shock uh, has worn off with no real end in sight. And as a result, Canada has taken in waves of Ukrainian immigrants. Uh, they're specifically not categorized as refugees under the sort of regular refugee stream because there was a separate program set up. So I want to unpack, I'll just talk a little bit about that since it was such a big part of the year for so many people, and then talk a little bit about Canada's role in the world right now. So I guess first thing, uh, speaking specifically about the war, it's been months since we heard an initial reaction from the federal government to the war, and I want to kind of assess like how effectively their responses have been adding up. So we have had stories of some Ukrainian immigrants struggling to access provincial benefits and things of that nature. Like, How has intake of refugees or migrants been, been going? I mean, there are processing struggles and there are certainly still people left in temporary situations in Eastern Europe who are trying to get here. What you were saying is right. Like, it's kind of fallen off the map. And I, I think it's been a while since anybody's been asked about it. But, like, the support continues. It, it's kind of like we're at the sort of ramp up point we were in the summer. Uh, but it's not like we've had ministers coming out as we did in the summer saying, you know, here's a new program. Here's a new set of aid. Here's another thing we're doing. So we've had some demands propositions to rethink the structure of our governance uh, after the passing of the Queen, I think because there is no King mania and people uh, are not vibing with Charles. Um, so David, is that something that's going to happen? Like, can we get rid of him or do we have to live with him? You know, one of the, uh, the challenges here is that I, I think we need to, first of all, recognize the colonial past and present of the institution of the monarchy. Past and present. It isn't, it isn't just the past, point one. Point two, it's not going anywhere in this country. Not going to happen. The, the crown, as it exists, exists as a, a Canadian crown. It's, she's now the king. Uh, is the king of Canada, or the queen of Canada, not just of the UK. They have individual crowns. that has been like that for some time. To get rid of the monarchy in this country, it would take unanimity in every province in the country, in their legislature, in the Senate, and in the House of Commons. Now, you couldn't get unanimity on what season it is from all of these people. <laughs> You're certainly not going to get it on the monarchy. So it's a non-starter. It's not going to happen. That said, what I think is good about criticizing the colonial institution and asking these questions is it focuses the mind. It says, OK, well, look, maybe we're not going to get rid of it. And by the way, there's no guarantee we would replace it with something better. 
It's like, I'm going to take apart my radio and fix it. Like, no, you are going to break it worse than it was broken, which is probably what we would do. But by looking at the, and, and criticizing the colonial institution, we can say, what about this is deeply problematic, and what can we do about it that is realistic? What does it tell us about reconciliation? What does it tell us about land back? What does it tell us about returning, uh, pressuring the crown to return things that they have stolen from other countries, from other peoples? What does it tell us about forcing them to make apologies and, and efforts to, to bridge gaps that they have created through colonialism. Th those are things we can do without getting rid of the institution. So I do think it's a useful exercise to focus on things that we can address with the problematic nature of the ongoing institution. Can I just share one thing that's just been done? That um, it's interesting the fact that we haven't spoken about it a lot because it's actually huge. You know, I'm not the biggest sovereigntist because like I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> I speak too much English. Like, literally, I'm such a suspicious Quebecer that, like, I'm literally blocked by the block. Like, Yves-François Blanchette <laughs> blocked me from Twitter because of my opinions. However, I will give a shout-out to the Parti Québécois, who just, this week, essentially refused to... There, there are three MNAs now. There's only three MNAs for the Parti Québécois left. Uh, all of them, we just had a Quebec election, so we just, they, they were just needed to be sworn in. They refused to swear an oath to King Charles III. And so they couldn't get in the National Assembly. They tried, and they were like, sorry, didn't swear your oath. And there was like this whole like, spectacle. And then within a week from that, like all the parties at the National Assembly, just last week, were like, okay, yeah, we're also not a big fan of the king. Even the liberals were like, yeah, we're federalists, but like, we're, we're Quebecers. So they all adopted a bill that says that now the oath to the king is optional at the National Assembly. So the Parti Québécois just was able to come in, and now you don't have to do that anymore if you want to be a sitting MNA in Quebec. So there's ways in which we don't need, like, we also had just an opening of the session. The notion of, like, the throne speech, the fact that we're arguing over whether or not the GG is, like, bilingual in French and English wouldn't even be a question if she wasn't the one doing the speech, right? There's ways in which we can rearrange stuff, and that's already the way things are done in Quebec. We don't even know who the left-hand governor is. The opening speech is done by the premier. And so we can make that job into, like, the job of a bureaucrat without having that person being like, I'm, like the king or queen of Canada and I'm representing and like touring the country and having so many like that paid pension and everything. There's ways in which we could do that too. There's ways I think we could look into people like Murad not having to say or swear an oath as well <laughs> when they, they get their citizenship. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. But I think a lot of people would appreciate that. But you it would be optional. So you could, uh, you could do you and then other people could do them too. But there's ways in which we could look into that. Just quickly, for any aspiring citizens, there is a process by which you can renounce your oath. You have to say it. They make you say it. They watch you say it, even on Zoom. There is a process. I will tell you about it later if you come up and talk to me. It was created by a court. We did have, in April, the Pope giving a historic apology for the horrific abuses against indigenous peoples by the hands of the Catholic Church. Uh, so Pope Francis actually traveled here to Canada to personally deliver that apology on behalf of the church after many years of campaigning by indigenous people. And it affected indigenous folks in a lot of ways. I think some people, uh, it meant a lot to them. Other people felt like simply an apology without significant reparations was not enough. So what was the significance of the Pope's visit? Because I think it was received differently in different corners of the country. So... I guess, what are the differing perspectives and what's the moving forward from this? Like, do we think we're going to see further engagement from the church on this question? 
Is it going to spark new conversations on the part of the federal government in terms of what they should do for reparations and, and to support indigenous peoples? I really like that this summer, despite you know the fact that the conversations were really hard, and I'd say the word I would use is very triggering for a lot of survivors. The one thing I loved uh, from this summer is the mobilization that led to the doctrine of discovery getting like trending. And so we're talking earlier about ancient Greece history, but that's just like Renaissance stuff that became mainstream all of a sudden. And people started Googling and started to understand how that's essentially baked into through essentially through the U.S., right, that uh, Thomas Jefferson and then eventually the U.S. Supreme Court decided that the doctrine of discovery was something that they should base American law on um, in terms of just basically acknowledging that uh, this land was just free to take for for the Americans to take. And then the Canadian court started to quote that, and then now that's baked into the Canadian justice system too, and a lot of indigenous people have been mobilizing around that issue for years. And I think the Pope visit was interesting in that sort because essentially the Pope went, what? What are you guys talking about? Doctrine of Discovery, what? Because it's basically an indirect loop of ideas where the Pope said something back in the 1500 and that that idea basically echoed everywhere. Now it's it's in Canada, but it's all in the Americas and it's in Oceania and it's all over the world in terms of how we treat indigenous lands. And so I think that getting that conversation started, getting that conversation started on the legal system was was really important. I want to end on uh, a somewhat forward-looking, I can't genuinely say hopeful because I'm not sure what you folks all will say, uh, but a forward-looking note. So trend prediction, I guess, for 2023. Uh, Are there things that you're hopeful for, excited to see, uh, or things that you think we should be on alert for, wary of, uh, you know, keep an eye out for? So that's a question for everybody. I'll start with Murad. Uh, Well, I'm a nihilist, so hope is not my thing. You know, in my day job, uh, usually a business reporter. And one thing that's about to get really interesting, uh, you know, there's this inflationary, there's an inflationary issue in the economy. And in the States, the answer has been to sort of repackage innovation as economic, as like industrial policy, basically like, we're going to make energy cheaper by building a bunch of green energy. uh, And... Uh, secretly, that's also what we were planning to do before inflation happened. But we put the word inflation in the bill, so now you like it. Uh, and the Republicans will vote for it. And in Canada, we're talking about inflation in different ways, but the government has promised in the next budget a lot of spending on economic policy. And that is worth paying attention to because the EU commissioner was in Ottawa like three weeks ago and he said to an audience of three journalists of whom I was one, they're worried that the US is gonna start a global subsidies war. And like, we haven't seen one of these things in a long time. Like the sort of laissez-faire Reaganomics model of running uh, an advanced economy has been in place for quite a long time now with some exceptions around the Great Recession. We might actually be about to see what it looks like when a whole bunch of governments in sort of like major advanced economies turn on the sort of industrial policy spending taps all the way. And that is going to be a wild ride, I promise you. I know it doesn't sound like it, but trust me. All right. Dave, what is your wish list and or wish not to see list, but you think it's going to happen? I don't know. Is anyone here a self-help expert? I'm trying to be more positive and hopeful in 2023. Uh, You don't don't know me. Here's the one thing I'm going to watch. 
Pundits have already started this. You referenced it earlier, this annoying thing of like, will there be an election? Because we've got to fill column spaces at the end of the year when nothing's happening. So you get all this bullshit. But Tom Mulcair has said there's likely going to be an election in 2023. So good news, folks. There is not going to be an election in 2023 because <laughs> he's wrong about everything. <laughs> so no election. I, I think we're going to you know, go through a year where we're just going to get governance and not an election. A few things I'm going to watch closely. Um, convoy 2, the return of the convoy. That's something I'm watching very carefully. Um, so I, I'm hoping we're going to see a serious pushback against, though, but seriously, uh, a serious pushback against the sort of white, reactionary, toxic, populist grievance politics of the convoy occupier folks, and that this country is just going to take uh, extremism, right-wing extremism, much more seriously and hate, because there's been a rise in that uh, of extremism. There's been a rise in hate and hate crimes, that particularly uh, there's been a rise of, uh, in, in uh, anti-Semitism, a rise in Islamophobia. These are all things that the government has to take seriously. I'm hoping they will. And then the final thing is I'm hoping we're actually going to get some progress on pharmacare, which we have been promised for decades. The government has committed to trying to get something by the end of 2023 into an act, into a Pharmacare Act, and that's the bill to watch for a trend. You know, because as you mentioned earlier, healthcare is incomplete in this country. If you can't have your brain covered, your eyes covered, your teeth covered, and your prescription drugs covered, so Pharmacare is, is something to watch very closely. All right, some tepid, tepid applause. You don't want free drugs? Emily, what is on your... 2023 wish list? I don't know if it's a wish list, but things that I'm going to be looking at, very, following very closely. Uh, one is the mess that is Alberta right now, and like that old Alberta Sovereignty Act stuff that is now on pause, but still like that, that whole, let's try to get what we think Quebec has, which we don't. <laughs> and trying to essentially troll us with that and troll the whole country with that. Saskatchewan too, it's not just Alberta, but there's, there's that thing uh, there which I find really, really fascinating, um, which I think I'm going to be following closely. And then the other thing that might as well not have been on a lot of people's radar is that like, the United Nations and the United States have just low-key asked Canada to invade Haiti, essentially to send the military and to lead a, a UN mission there. And then Bob Ray was just there trying to figure out alternatives. They're like trying to find a solution, trying to find a way to still be leaders in Haiti uh, without sending in the army or more police because that didn't work. And I think they're not trying to not do Afghanistan once again. So that's going on and Canada's definitely playing a leadership role in that. What I wish for Canada not to invade my homeland. That'd be great. All right. So yeah, that's a bleak note to end off on, I suppose. We did want to take at least one sort of like listener audience question. So I do have one that I'll share with the panel. If you could keep your responses short and snappy, that'd be great. Uh, so we have this question from an Arthur Jassak or Jackak, I think. Uh, and the question is this, our societies and culture have changed and adapted from every new form of communication, followed by, you know, a list of forms of communication, written word, photography, telegraph, radio, TV, all of these have kind of changed our politics. What does the current state of media, and specifically social media, tell us about the types of politicians and politics that we can expect to see in Canada over the next, say, five years? You know, sh short answers. So simple, right? That's a question for David. <laughs> Let me finish. Has anyone out there ever been uh, the most insufferable person in their university seminar? 
Imagine that person walking around with a megaphone that reaches millions of people. That's, that's the politics we get now. And to bring it round, what we end up getting is utter shits in our <laughs> politics. Uh, I, do, I do think social media has been a tremendous tool for empowering a lot of people who traditionally have, have been marginalized and, and left outside of our politics. Uh, it has also enabled the worst among us to, to have a megaphone. And I do think that's, that shapes our politics to a tremendous degree. I'm going to end on this note. In 2023, I'm going to try really hard not to feed the trolls. If we all decided tomorrow not to feed the trolls, they would more or less go away. You, you, you don't have to buy Jordan Peterson's book. They, they, they could just go away. And I, I believe truly, you know, if we could all do a little work to just ignore the trolls, including the political trolls, we'd all be a lot, a lot better off. So if you're looking for 2023 goals, that's a very, very good one because we do have the power to push back against that toxic element of social media. And I think it's worth adopting that, that as a goal. All right. Uh, I have one further question that is, uh, was flagged as a silly question, so we'll end on the lighthearted note. And this is from Bruce. The sitcom, What We Do in the Shadows, is about four vampires who share a house in Staten Island. Yeah, great show. Uh, three are your traditional fangs, bats, and blood vampires, but one, Colin Robinson, is an energy vampire who feeds on being irritating and boring to other people by telling dull, rambling stories, fixating on terrible jokes and bad ideas, and just generally being a drag on every conversation he's in, which leads to the question, how concerned should we be that Pierre Poiliev is secretly a supernatural energy vampire? <laughs> and if he is, what should we do about it? I'm Matea Roach, and that's been The Backbench. Thank you so much for coming. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.